0: God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When my kids were young, I decided to build them a playhouse. And I found some blueprints of probably the most, what I thought was the most adorable playhouse that you would ever want for your children. So I was excited to get going on this project. And it was basically, you know, a little house, a gable roof built above the ground with a sandbox below supported by four posts. And that even had a deck and a ladder going up on one side and a slide going down the other side. It was a glorious little house. And it even had, uh, I think, a couple of windows, a swinging door, full trim. It was beautiful. So I couldn't wait to get this house built. But I had a problem. I actually really couldn't afford to build the house with all the lumber that was required. And so one day at church, um, this is a Medicine Hat, but I got talking with one of our seniors. And I told him about my project, and he says, "You know, Dan, why don't you come with me to the landfill site? Um, I go there for projects all the time." And I thought, "Landfill site? Why would you? Why would you go there to find stuff to you know build stuff from?" And so, I mean, this is just a filthy place. But then he explained to me, "But no, 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 it's not the city landfill site. But it's a place where old construction material is taken." And so it was a little different than a normal site. So I agreed to go with him. So everything was there. All this construction material, it was all used. But um, I found the sheeting that I needed. I, needed, I, I found the 2 by 4s that I needed. And uh, the, basically the only thing I purchased was brand new posts and lumber for the base of the playhouse. But other than that, everything in this playhouse was used, I used used lumber. So after many hours of measuring and cutting and hammering and assembling and painting, the little playhouse became a reality. And my kids spent hours playing in this playhouse, climbing and sliding down the new slide and into a little pool down below. They just loved the playhouse. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because the passage that we read is also about the building of a beautiful house. But it's a building, a house of stones. The building material for this house is not wood, but stone. But then again, if you reflect on this passage, it is quite clear that Peter is actually not talking about Literal stones. He says in verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God, precious to him, you also are like living stones and being built into a spiritual house. So even though the image of the building of a house or a temple lies in the background here, Peter is clearly speaking about stones as a person or as a people. Now, in this passage, the word stone is found six times in five verses, with also the word rock in verse 8 thrown in there for good measure, but it's all one and the same. But the question is, why this emphasis on stone? What is this living stone in verse 4? And we are also called living stones. Why is that? Now before we get to figuring out what this all means, let me give you a little background information. Now first century Jews knew from their own scriptures that the word stone carried a double meaning. And um, according to... Scholar Tom, Wright. So, uh, first of all, there was a great hope of Israel that God would come back to live in a properly built home, right? So this is in the imagination of the Jewish people. But what does this have to do with the stone? Well, there's a long tradition about God's true temple needing to be built on the proper rock or Foundation or cornerstone. That was very much in their imagination. Once you find the right stone or the cornerstone, you will be well on your way to building the right home or temple for God, preparing the way for God's return. Secondly, God promised the coming of his Son, Now, the word stone in Hebrew is very much like the word son in English. So just like in English, where the word son has three out of the five letters in stone, right? You can find son in the word stone. In Hebrew, it's just the same, right? In Hebrew, the word for son is ben, right? Like ben laden means son of someone, right? And also in Hebrew, it is Three out of the four Hebrew letters from the word, uh, which um, in the word in Hebrew, the word for stone is eben, e-b-e-n, right? And so there you go. So in Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually brings these two words together in the telling of the parable of the farmer and his son. So if you remember, the farmer or the master, he plants a vineyard and a watchtower. And we know in these symbolisms that the vineyard represents Israel, and the watchtower represents the temple. But then he rented out the vineyard to some farmers to take care of it. But each time his master sends in his servants to collect the harvest or the fruit, they are treated very badly by these hired farmers. And finally, the master, what does he do? He sends in his own son, right? He sends in his own son, thinking, well, these farmers, these tenants, they will respect him because this is, you know, this is the owner's son. But of course, the parable goes on to tell that they actually killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, at the end of the parable, Jesus actually quotes Psalm 118:22 and 23, which is exactly the same passage that Peter quotes from. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know right away we're not talking about a building, are we? We're talking about a person. So in this parable, Jesus is linking the master's son with the stone. The cornerstone has been rejected. So try to hold that in your memory here. We also know that God promised King David that his son would build the Jerusalem temple, or the temple in Jerusalem. And he also said that the son of David would become the son of God himself. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, as you look at 1 Peter 2.6, Peter actually quotes Isaiah 28.16, where it talks about the chosen and precious cornerstone. And it is not literally a cornerstone of a physical temple, as we mentioned, but a human being. For the coming king, it also says, and the one who trusts in him, not a thing, a person, will never be put to shame. In fact, we know this is a person since Peter began this entire passage from verse 4 with the exhortation to come to him. Remember that? Right at the beginning. Come to him, the living stone. So this, the stone image moves from a literal temple that David's son actually built, Solomon. We know that long time ago. Built with stones a long time ago. And it moves from that to a stone that represents the human son that still lies in the future, long after Solomon, but that is connected to King David. This can be seen rather complicated and confusing, but try to fix this in your minds. God promised a son. And he promised to build a home or a house where he lives with his people forever. Okay? I think that's, that's the key line. God promised the son and he will build a house where he will live with his people forever. So let's remember, the temple was not simply a building where religious things went on. The temple represented something significant. It was primarily imagined where God lives with his people. God with us. Once you connect the sun with the building of a spiritual house, everything comes together with this beautiful, powerful message for all of us. So, who is the sun? For Peter, for the Bible, of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is the son. He is the son of God. He is the stone. In fact, he is the cornerstone. And the new home is already being built, Peter says, because the cornerstone has already arrived. King Jesus has come. The cornerstone has come, and so the building can now begin. And Peter can't wait to tell us why this is important, especially for those living in exile. So this is how he begins. So through Jesus, the living stone, we become living stones being built into a spiritual house. So let's read verses four or five, four to five again. Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be holy, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the true Son of God, promised long before. That he is a living stone means he is no longer dead. You could say he is the resurrected stone. He is the resurrected Son of God, once rejected, even killed, even though he was the cornerstone. But in this great reversal, the rejected, crucified Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven to become our living king. But then comes this most shocking piece. Those who come to him, those who come to the living, resurrected Jesus, we who were once lost and spiritually dead can now become the living stones. Meaning resurrected stones, resurrected people of God, who now God is now using to build his spiritual house. Is your imagination going crazy here? Right? There's a lot lot of creativity in this passage here. So when we come to Jesus, we we become actually the place of God's residence. We become God's spiritual house. God dwells with us. We are a spiritual house where the Holy Spirit comes and indwells. Ephesians 2.22, Paul says, And in Him, that's Jesus, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit very clear there. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter reminds us that we were called from the darkness into his wonderful light. You know, when I built this playhouse for our children, as I mentioned, most of the wood came from this construction dump. So, you might say they were the rejected construction material. No one wanted it anymore, right? Just put it aside, put it in the dump. But if you remember, to carry the analogy, the little house was built on the foundation of brand new pressure-treated lumber. And so the foundation was brand new. So in a similar way, even though all of us have come out of the reject pile because of our sins against God, everything becomes new When we build our life on the cornerstone, on this foundation, this cornerstone who is Jesus. So, the story that Peter is teaching us is really about the transformation of our identity and thinking. That's his purpose, he's trying to change minds. When Jesus is our cornerstone, it changes our thinking, our perspective, our identity. Jesus, God's son, he was the mediator. He is the spiritual sacrifice on our behalf, bringing us freedom through the forgiveness of sins. Now we are spiritually cleansed people and we too, like Jesus, become living stones, resurrected stones. But resurrection stones don't just lie around in the field, do they? Right? In their independent way. Now, this is not what Peter is imagining. Not fields that you have to pick out of the ground. Not stones that you have to pick out of the field, right? A farmer's field. No, he's talking about stones more like bricks. And what are these stones and bricks for? He meant to build something, right? Building a new home. So as we come to Jesus, again and again I think Peter is imagining God will gift you, God will honor you, and you become part of God's building of a new home. So this leads us to another significant theme, not just in this passage but in Peter. We may be dishonored, but in Jesus, we are no longer ashamed. You know, when we speak about having a new identity in Jesus, it's far more than, you know, buying a Hawaiian shirt. And, of course, you know I did that. And put it on and think you become Hawaiian, right? It's more than just putting on the external In Jesus, as our cornerstone, a firm foundation, our identity in him is deeply spiritual and emotional and transformational. Something real has begun in us. So Peter says at the end of verse 6, And the one who trusts in him, that is Jesus, the cornerstone, will never be put to shame. Or as NLT says, you will never be disgraced. In Jesus, you will never be ashamed. Do you ever experience shame? I think we all do in part, in different ways. But shame actually disrupts God's design for the world. In short, God's mission... For Jesus, our cornerstone, includes the removal of shame and his desire to restore honor. Psalms 8.6 says that God created humans with glory and honor. Adam and Eve were honored co-regents with God who were naked and unashamed. But shame and disorder came into the world when Satan lied and tempted humankind. And so we know the story of Adam and Eve. They sinned, and what happened? They hid. They covered themselves in shame, only because of their disobedience. And from that moment on, the cultures of the world have sought to restore their shame a dishonor by making a name for themselves. And that's a quote, of course, from the Tower of Babel, in the building of the Tower of Babel. So every culture since then tries their best to feel worthy, or significant, or more powerful, trying to gain security. Every human being on the face of this planet Every culture feels this sense of unworthiness and feels rejection by others because, as Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God. That's just the way it is. That is a true picture of our human reality. Now, what's interesting is that Peter writes to churches who come out of what is often called honor and shame Cultures, And to be precise, every culture has their own flavor of honor and shame, but in some cultures it's just more pronounced. So in the Roman culture, according to Michael Gorman, he's a New Testament scholar, the loss of honor or esteem was very much connected to one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. So in Roman society, respect and honor was based mostly on things like wealth and education, uh, rhetorical skills, family pedigree, and political connections. Now, in our Western cultures, I think you you can relate to some of those things and to some aspects of the Roman world. Um, But in our culture, honor and shame is more connected to individualism, Individual self-esteem or individual self-discovery. And our Western world tends to be far more individualistic, but in the Roman world, once honor or esteem was given to you by a group, given to you by your family or your community or town or city you lived in. Now, for example, um, if a son did something foolish like stealing, you know, something from the grocery store, the parents might say to their son, your foolishness has brought dishonor to our family. See the perspective? It's about the family or the community, right? Now, of course, there's shame upon himself, but the emphasis is you brought embarrassment to this home and to this little town. The focus is more on a group rather than in the the individual. So, try to imagine these Roman citizens. They've now come to Jesus. They've turned their lives to Jesus. Hallelujah. But now they face a predicament. Because their own families, their own towns, their own provinces begin to turn against them because they have changed their allegiance from the Roman emperor to Jesus or from the family idols to Jesus. And it would have been considered by the group, by the culture, as disloyal to the family and community. Do you feel that impact? Right? Shame on you. You you bring shame upon this family and upon this empire. And suddenly they feel like they have become rejects. They are shamed. They are dishonored citizens of Rome. And so this is why I think Peter calls them exiles. And you are strangers. Strangers. Because it's like they are square pegs trying to fit into round little holes. They don't fit. Because they no longer fit into Roman society. I mean, what a huge challenge. The reason for the writing of this letter, right? Now, for us today, it's a bit different because... We still live in a culture of uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so forth. Individualism, as I say, is more of our culture. But our culture is changing. Once influential, the church is no longer being asked to provide answers. We are now looked upon with suspicion. We are now being pressured to support the sexual convictions of the culture. And we feel the pressure of joining the majority view. And if you don't fit, in subtle ways, we are being dishonored and shamed, practically being told that we're doing wrong. Right? For our moral convictions, where we believe it's honoring to God. But of course, these types of shame come in different flavors. Um, You personally might struggle with shame because of your past. You might experience shame because of your economic status. Uh, for young people, maybe it's about having a beautiful body or a face and you feel that you do not have that and you feel ashamed. And because so much of the young in our culture live on social media, um, our honor, their honor and shame is often tied to the opinions and the views of found on social media, so on and so forth. But the deep message here is profound. We may be dishonored, but in Jesus, we are no longer dishonored. We are no longer ashamed. Come to the living Jesus, Peter says, Come to Jesus because in him you will not be ashamed. It doesn't mean that you won't be shamed, but when you live your life in Jesus, you find no shame. So the question is, why can we trust Jesus? What is it about finding our life in Jesus that changes things? Well, first of all, Jesus knows rejection because he was rejected. Peter says, come to the living Jesus, rejected by human beings, but then chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus himself did not fit the views of his own people. Jesus, in fact, became a stone that they stumbled on. And they fell because they disobeyed the message of Jesus, of who he truly was. He was the cornerstone, he was not recognized. He was the true son, he was not recognized. He stood with the blind and the lame, who were the rejects of their culture. But he became their savior, our savior, by becoming filthy. Dishonored and rejected. But profoundly in his death, this explosive expression of love and forgiveness. He conquered evil and sin and death. And because of this, the living Jesus was chosen and honored and considered by God the Father as precious to him. But now, in Jesus, we become honored and precious people of God. Isn't that beautiful? As God the Father honored Jesus in his rejection, God is saying, the same happens to you when you come to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, the living stone, he makes us into living stones, resurrected people of God. Then this is where Peter, you know, he just kind of pulls out all the stops. It's like someone removing, you know, a, a plug on a great, wonderful waterfall. And then it just all spills out. And so I want you to listen to these last words, these titles, these words of honor, and let them come pouring onto you because they are your new identity. So absorb it. But you are a chosen people. He's probably repeated that three times or four times already, right, um, in this letter. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we will feel the sting of rejection. Peter is preparing his churches for this. And this is why I love this letter for today. It's preparing God's people for opposition and rejection. You might hear these words, oh, you're one of those. It's stinging, isn't it? Because it's a loaded comment. But let these truths of your dignity and honor in Jesus penetrate the depths of your soul and your feelings and your emotions because it has to take deep root in our lives. Or we don't get it. Now, you probably know this already, but all these titles were once given to Israel. He's just borrowing words from the Old Testament. But of course, now something new has to happen. Now, in Jesus, the cornerstone, cornerstone, the true Son, something new is being built. Anyone who comes to Jesus and builds her life on this cornerstone becomes God's beautiful possessions, his new home, his new people, his new priesthood and nation, all because of God's incredible love and mercy. And with the restoration of honor, God gives us now a new purpose and mission. And you just suggested at the very end, we're going to get into it next week, but to declare the praises of God And being his glowing lights in darkness of the world. Yes, even in rejection. And the shaming that goes on in Jesus. God says, I can help you. Bring you a new identity. But I'm going to send you out into this world. And you're going to be my light in it. Because I love this world. And I care for this world. 1 Peter 4.16 says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What a wonderful verse. The Apostle Paul famously said in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some were, by the way. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes. Amen to that. Do you believe that? Right? And so the message is clear here. Come to Jesus. Come to build your life on the cornerstone. Because no matter what happens in Jesus, there is no shame, but only honor and dignity. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to go right to the Lord's Supper. And so I don't want to say too much here. But use your spiritual imaginations, right? Take in everything that you heard. And I think we'll just simply borrow from the words of Peter right at the beginning. Where he says, come to the living stone. Right? Come to the living stone. And so he is inviting us to come to Jesus himself. And so the elements that we pick up in our hands represent the life of Jesus. And how he became filthy, experienced sin through his death, through his suffering, even shedding his blood for us and dying in our place, offering us the forgiveness of sins. Yes, that Jesus who was rejected. But Peter's call to us is come to that Jesus because God has raised him up. God has honored him and called him precious in His sight, and now in Jesus, Jesus wants to do the same for you, right? And so, as you come up this morning, um, come to Jesus, and uh, you know, I, I have a kind of a picture in my mind now of of, of a child, and and they're they're sad. And their faces and shoulders are slumped down. They're looking down. There's tears coming down their cheeks. And I guess I'm picturing Jesus just holding their face, right? And just holding it up. He says, look at, look at me, child, right? Look at me. And so as you come to the communion table, think about that image, Because Jesus wants to raise up your face, look at him, to instill in you a new dignity, a new honor, a new life of freedom in Jesus that he can give you when you come to him. Okay? So let's pray, and I invite you to come. Lord Jesus, what a powerful, wonderful word from This passage you are the living stone making us into resurrected people of God and Lord may you give us your people a whole new courage a whole new level of confidence as we come to you and Lord may we keep on coming to you because you are in this place you are with your people And there's this absolute freedom that we can come to the throne of grace again and again and again. And when we do so, we become renewed day by day. And Lord, as we pick up these two elements that help us remember you, may it be a symbol of you raising up our face, receiving your love and your compassion.